rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next on Drama on One, Creatives in Conversation. Alongside acclaimed theatre performances in the role of Medea, Electra, Hedda Gabler and Richard II, Fiona Shaw has delighted screen audiences in various roles as ice-cool MI6 agent Carolyn Martins in Killing Eve and as therapist to Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag. Her film credits include the inimitable Mrs Nugent in The Butcher Boy, Dr Eileen Cole in My Left Foot and Petunia Dursley in Harry Potter. In 2009, she was invited to RTE Radio Centre's Studio One to give the Michael Littleton Memorial Lecture. Here's an excerpt from the lecture entitled The Elephant and the Nightingale, The Enduring Nature of Language in Theatre. I'm going to talk about The Elephant and the Nightingale and the enduring nature of language in the theatre. But I might have also said I wanted to talk about the future. And I knew I could only talk about the future if I talked about the past. So uh, if there are any question marks about elephants and nightingales, I look forward to hearing them. I was stepping out of a cab late one night recently in Primrose Hill, just after a performance of Mother Courage, and I heard a nightingale just singing near Chalcot Square. And I know I might write a song about that, but I think it's already been written. Nightingales sing more loudly in urban environments in order to overcome background noise. Seconds later, after the nightingale, came a long, mournful cry muffled through the fog of an elephant. Here was another misplaced creature. You might have thought I was if I'm hearing these strange creatures, but I live very near the Regent's Park Zoo. And it was an African elephant crying, stuck out of place, calling out across the African plain. And no one but his fellow African, the nightingale, to hear him. One could be heard, one could not. One was happy, one was sad. What is art? When somebody asked Andy Warhol, he said, isn't it somebody's name? (laughs) Now, just after the banks collapsed last autumn, I met a banker at a party, and he told me that on the worst day, he found himself in that morning in the Royal Academy in Piccadilly in London, gazing at an exhibition there. He had left the office in despair, and he began to feel the peace of this cultural cathedral. But he also noticed that others of his besuited colleagues were also looking at art. These men would never normally have done that if they were having a usual day making fortunes in the city. They may have walked past the building in Piccadilly hundreds of times, barely noticing it. But here it was, ready to embrace their empty moment and help them dive inside themselves to the universe within for protection when the outer world had collapsed. Art sometimes waits for the catastrophe and is there to help when it happens. Classical theatre names the catastrophe. It sculpts the ugly into a shape so we can see, experience and forgive. It reminds us where we are in the scale of emergency, and most people are quite aware of the sleep of eternity, so it's never very far away. For classical theatre to be enduring, we have to assume that it might have value to others and us afterwards, that it's significant, powerful, exceptional, larger and more important than other things, and therefore that it endures. Most art has hesitation in its discovery. 
It's tested against time and often ignored in its first appearance. But the theatre, because it has to make its mark in the moment of its happening, is the most vulnerable form. Its power is not lasting. The 20th century is full of irretrievable moments. Eleanor Adusa making people faint, Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream at the RSC, Sarah Bernhardt's Hamlet, Mark Rylance's Hamlet, the opening of the Playboy, The Western World in Dublin. Plays can be enduring in themselves, but only in potential. They can get lost under a sea of expectation, overproduction, irrelevance, carelessness, or by ownership by academics. They can only endure if the onslaught of their power is met in a rhythm of performance where they can communicate their potentiality and life-changing energy. Theatre endures by being entirely new each time. But for this to happen, the performer who's in the front line of the experience has to become themselves a creative artist, not just interpretative. And who is the creative artist? What always astonishes me about actors is that so much is given before you start acting. What country you come from, what religion you have, what taboos are in your family, your relationships in childhood, all of these mark the hard drive of any artist that is using themselves as the paintbrush and the canvas. I've always been amazed that so much rhythm is laid down by our upbringing. If you're in a family with lots of children, you'll speak faster, or if you're from Cork, like me. Obviously, confidence and its lack affect everything from tonality to consonants. Why is it, for example, that the English speak in G major? Somewhere inbuilt in their historical psyche is epitomized by Peter O'Toole saying, we shall take Akaba tonight. There's a propositional disposition. To be or not to be, that is the question, is the center of English drama. Not only the dialectical argument, the question in one half of the sentence followed by an answer in the second, but it is in the natural rhythm of the country to speak in iambic pentameter. The iam is a natural beat of walking, a walking foot, and the length of the line suits the length of our natural breath. But before you run for the border, take comfort. The Irish, too, speak in iambic pentameter naturally, which merely says that there are five sharp stresses in each line, such as, I wonder, would you like a cup of tea? The Irish, however, speak in a minor key. And so they say, I wonder, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> More apologetically. <laughs> the Americans don't bother with any of this. They just head straight for the noun. So their tendency, nationally, is to say tea, <laughs> or coffee, or job, or money. African Americans, or people with African descent, speak in six beats. So they tend towards saying, I wonder, would you like a cup of tea, man? The French, amusingly, speak in four beats. So their natural tendency is to say, I wonder, would you like a cup of... <laughs> to be or not to be, that is... <laughs> These tendencies are laid down in the actor's history before they even start to master the spoken text. So if plays live like unfinished sculptures, they need to be fashioned by the Michelangelos, actors of our time, who are themselves fashioned by the time they live in. Theatre needs the adaptability of each generation to serve the language in the moment and not necessarily be true to the past. And what a past we have in Ireland in relation to the English language, an understandable inherited horror of Elizabethan English writers, 
Spencer, Raleigh and Shakespeare, at the very time when English was making a push to becoming one of the most valuable languages in the history of mankind. And indeed, Shakespeare's plays a quantum leap for the cultural life all over the world in the way he used language. We, in Ireland, had a language of our own and a legal system of our own under the Brehan Laws that was interrupted by Poyning's Law in 1494 and the systematic adjustment to common law, which eroded our natural oral disposition. Hard times for a gracious nation who had no word for yes or no, which had familial clannish rather than class ties, I read that Richard II, when he came, he couldn't understand why at a dinner all the kings turned up with all their families. So to accommodate them, they made the families eat separately. No wonder he went back and had to sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temple of a king keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a little breath to monarchize, be feared, to kill with looks something he was doing to our kings, I think. But it's not just the English language that has been the architect of the theatre that we have today. In the past, it seems to me that the theatre has had three remarkable flowerings in language terms. The monolith that Greek tragedy seems often to represent for Western European person can easily lose meaning. Big themes spoken in harsh translations of the original now unspoken Greek may have been eviscerated by time and grandeur. Language, especially in England, was stolen by the universities as was vocabulary. And to this day, there's such a divide between the classes. But the opportunity for the modern artist to insist that the language live now can allow the scale of human excess to reveal profound truths about even the darkest unseen corners of the human soul. I was amazed at the reaction that the audience gave to Medea when I performed it both here in Dublin and abroad. We had people scream, be sick, and even a heart attack at the moments of high pressure. And I feel not with revulsion, but with identification. In Medea, the audience are asked to identify with exaggerated reality. Medea has left her family, indeed chopped her brother's limbs up as a method of following her passion. She's someone who has killed for love a feeling about which we may squirm, but we also admire. Cornered, she's acted on her feeling and killed her rival, the princess, endangering herself and her children. The speed of events, the moral impetus is terrifying. The audience has agreed all along with the gentle chorus who support her. They find themselves caught up in her logic, right up to the killing of her children. The ambition of this play is to go where no other writing has ever gone in its unsurpassable strength. It is enough to remind us that there are places in the human mind so dark that one is sullied by being human. Electra, another great play of this period, places not the grand debate of Agamemnon at the centre, not the Trojan War, but the sideshow of a rejected daughter. The Greeks, both Sophocles and Euripides, oddly, seem to allow women the right to speak, perhaps because they're the most vulnerable, pitiable humans in the pantheon of nature. Electra is caught in not being able to resolve her mother's murder of her father. She argues it out with her mother, Clytemnestra, who has a pretty good argument about the death of her daughter, Iphigenia. These moral positions usually have love at the centre of them too. So they're never just debates. They are infused with all the illogical affections of natural family feeling, later mined and formulated into pathologies by the early 20th century psychologists. 
So why this flowering in the fourth century BC? What seems to have happened is that Athens banished dialects, forcing the country to speak one language, Athenian. And so this harness, which seems as a restriction, also became a freeing power, not just for words, but the possibility for drama. So Euripides, Plato, Astrophanes, Iskris, Sophocles, Socrates, all occur within the same 50-year time span. Language responds to cruel discipline. The next great phenomenon for language was the Elizabethan period in England. One of the reasons for this is that Shakespeare was minting a new language at the moment in which there was a revolution in language itself. He was the Microsoft Word of the English language. Chaucer had been his John the Baptist by naming English as a fusion between French, German and Middle English. When Aprile, when the Shura Sota had pierced everything into the Rota. Some of you will remember from school. But somehow, the language was still inadequate for sloughing off the medieval darkness. People needed words to express the internal optimism and complexity that the new wealth was allowing them. They had feelings that were as complex as their thinking. They needed precision and muscularity. In Shakespeare, we find language of infinite variation. Rhythms and broken rhythms taking us into the unconscious. Rhetoric, alliteration. Never, 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 says King Lear when his daughter is dead. I am invisible, says Oberon, one of the great stage directions of all time, as the audience then make the play occur. I have done the deed, says Macbeth in monosyllables, used with atavistic clarity. Images that tell us about the interior, not just character, to understand the text. Take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. My love is like a red, red rose. The language had to seem ordinary but not be so. The audience were being asked to think as well as feel. And through the sonnet form, indeed through speeches influenced by the classics, Shakespeare played into and away from the tradition. So to be or not to be, that is the question, begins, like most of Shakespeare's speeches, with a proposition borrowed from Plato, but simply put. He then translates the argument through the speech using logic, but matching it with feeling, which leaves the listener intellectually held and emotionally devastated. To the end, we lose the name of action. The audience not only hears the words, they experience the travelling aspect of the language being offered, images that expand the mind. It is a language that makes the actor an athlete and stretches the audience too. It had life-giving energy and came from the infinity of the imagination. And it is not insular. It functions by combustion with anyone who faces it, speaks it, tries to understand it. It is thought made physical flesh. It seems to be a model that existed and was so plastic enough to take on all the variation of modern life. And yet it had a structure in the language that bounced with meaning backwards and forwards. Each place Shakespeare wrote had its own imagery, its own vocabulary. Character is situation and language infused with rhythms are at odds with the drumbeat of the iambic pentameter, a beat that suited the Western breathing habit both then and now and lets us hear their humanity. 
However, sometimes he reversed the rhythm. The witches in Macbeth reversed the expected iambic pentameter. Instead of going ti-tum, 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 they go tum-ti, 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 tum-ti. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's after one, that will be our set of sun, where the place upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. Catherine in the Shrew, she speaks only in ugly fragments until the end of the play, when she speaks the only poetry in a play, Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scorfing glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frosts do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwinds shake fair buds, and in no sense is meet or amiable. Indeed, beyond language is another releasing harness, is that women are often a useful tool to discover how Shakespeare works. The women tend not to have mothers, Juliet being the exception, but often fathers who are unsympathetic. So the test for the girl is her breaking through a hostile patriarch and finding her womanhood without maternal support. Miranda lives with her strange father Prospero. Beatrice relies on the kindness of her uncle. Desdemona defies her father to marry Othello. Viola nearly drowns and has no brother for the play's course. Rosalind is banished by her uncle and even Goneril has a sympathetic history. For women in Shakespeare, the universe of their domestic lives, unlike men, is the world of their moral universe. Their gender means that to discover destiny, they have to go outside both to find out who they are. They dress up as men in order to find out what the actual world is. Shakespeare uses this over and over again without apology and without polemic. Portia has inherited loads of money, but no guide from a parent. They also seem to have different rhythms from each other. Portia has a careless rhythm when untethered. I pray you tarry, pause a day or two before you hazard, for in choosing wrong I lose your company, therefore forbear a while, something tells me, but it is not love, I would not lose you, etc. But they also share the Elizabethan habit of syllogistic logic. All the characters have the ability to speak by debating an issue, so we are seeing the map of their thinking minds, not the chat of their normal lives. Again, Portia went calm. You see me, Lord Bassanio, where I stand, such as I am, though for myself alone I would not be ambitious in my wish to wish myself much better, yet for you I would be trebled twenty times myself, a thousand times more fair, ten thousand times more rich, if only to stand high in your account. So we can hear that they have a different rhythm depending on their state of affairs, but they all have the emergency of being, heightened situation forces the writer to make the language the only thing that characters can hang on to and thus gives them an energy to speak and us to hear. It makes them mint with precision what they are feeling and so here lies the Elizabethan miracle which is that thought and feeling became the same thing. The intensity of language mapped the intensity of feeling. This makes the actor better and the value of the exercise exciting and informative, precipitatory, totally spellbinding for the audience. Theatre is sport, adventure, investigation, and beauty on top of being a storytelling tool. It can be a sophisticated moral compass as the contradiction has to be played, tightly held in a moment. The Princess of France, on hearing that her father has died, says, dead on my life. The almost Wagnerian prose of Rosalind dresses a boy and talking to a boy about love. She says, no, no, Orlando, men are April when they woo, December when they wed, maids are May when it is May, but the sky changes when they are wives. 
The phrasing itself carries the meaning and the situation. Rhythm is the key to the unconscious, individually as well as nationally. There is no subtext, the text is dense, and the attempt by the Elizabethan was to find out the meaning that lay hidden until this harness freed them. The writing was not ruminatory, so depression is not what drives the characters. The language is always transitive, not implosive. How weary, stale, flat, unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie upon it, fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed, things rank, etc., in despair, they talked to God, who might be the listening universe, never named, a role often taken by the audience, so we're all in the universe at the same time, and the circle is complete. Shakespeare offered formality and extravagance, and inevitably was followed by reaction, in his case within 20 years by John Donne, who was using a much more jagged language, playing against the ordered chaos of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's ability was to create poetical language out of normal speech and make it sound like normal speech. John Donne's language uses normal speech and makes it sound like poetry. So you can hear the difference in their voices. Compare Shakespeare's, No longer mourn for me when I am dead, then you shall hear the surly solemn bell cry out that I am fled from this vile world with vilest worms to dwell. You can hear this wonderful, easy, rolling rhythm. John Donne starts saying, I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not we until then? Or, you know, she is all states, all princes I, nothing else is. It sounds like punk rock in comparison. The staccato phrasing has replaced the iambic pentameter, and later again, Cromwell shut down the theatres, silenced this exploration as he did severely to us over here. For the next 400 years, writing continued to pull away from the expression of the unconscious through the Restoration, which meant that language began to reveal not just truth, but also lies. As soon as that happened, the theatrical revolution of representing the human experience was in watching the lie. Behaviorism began to take over from verbal expression, not just in English, but also in Ibsen. By the end of the 19th century, Hedda Gabler, you have Lovebog saying, and forgive the translation, have you any idea how much I loved you, Hedda? And she replies, did I? <laughs> People cease to take on each other's threads of language. They move back into the loneliness of a world in which God no longer can hear the crying soul. Nietzsche had declared him dead. Now, the most recent flowering of language in English was in Ireland. Here in Dublin, Ireland produced Yeats, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, all within 30 years and within a 100-kilometre radius. Why? I suggest because the Irish language, the language of Ireland, had been forbidden under the penal laws which had kept the people crippled for so long. And so when they were released from this, there was a flowering act of revenge and the new language now mastered could be used with all its mainland accuracy but elaborated with the rhythms and imaginations that were Celtic. Beckett is the first off the blocks for surmounting and using all that went before. He takes the scale of human desolation that the Greeks had in their monolithic writing, that Shakespeare had in his extravagant writing, into the 20th century where language had lost its hold as a truth purveyor. Possibly because politicians and world leaders had lied so eloquently um, to so many different nations. I know a Chinese director, a man called Shen Shisheng, who told me that the Beijing Times always said that the weather was always sunny in China, even though you one look at the sky, you could see it was raining. So people began to read the papers as the opposite 
of what was written. Well, Samuel Beckett's Happy Days was written in 1962, but it plays better now and more richly than it did then, I think. The fragmentation that was so hard to hear then, not in natural speech but in the theatre, now sounds like heightened naturalism. Beckett chipped away at what was left of the denuded poetry of people's speech, which was so often the fragmentary speech of the innocent, lost, godless souls. He takes us beyond language to silence. Winnie says, golden you called it. That day when the last guest was gone, here's to your golden. May it never, may it never, That day, what day? The audience are being asked to have the experience of the anxiety of the play. It happens in their minds rather than being experienced on the stage. The questions as to who is speaking, what's happening, where are we going, are left up to the audience. His great achievement was to dislodge the theatre from event and story. And Beckett, like Shakespeare, was not trapped by class, realism, or language. He revels in a compassionate understanding of our now incoherent state. So what of a theatre if it needs to use a language that it can no longer trust? It has meant that some of us have gone towards poets, not playwrights, to find a piece of theatre. I performed T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland because poetry had a name for being a private matter between the reader and writer but it became clear that the language was public, accessible and dramatic. Maybe it wasn't when it was first written, but it became so. Edith Sitwell said, poetry is the articulated scream. But then so are most Greek plays, so are most tragedies, so are most of the writings of Frank McGuinness or Tom Murphy or Marina Carr, which makes me think the theatre is poetry and therefore pure poetry can have a place in the theatre. Eliot can work in the theatre because, in part, his poetry is often taken from domestic life. I discovered, performing this poem, that my responsibility was not to own it for myself. I wanted the poem to happen in people's minds, not on stage. This was invented by personalising every single line into a play, a different voice. April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land. Mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. I based that on a friend's mother in Mallow, who had a pug dog in one arm and a cigarette in the other. It was the kind of thing she would say. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. For me, sounds very like Herbert Ross, who was a film director I once knew, who had the easy glamour of the West Coast and the irony of the East Coast. The audience doesn't need to know who these people are, but they hear the lines as if spoken by a character. So by the time you get to Madame Sesostris, famous clairvoyante, in my mind she was a Dublin lady telling the future, and she wasn't very good at it, a glass of gin or whiskey in her hand. Madame Sesostris had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe, with a wicked pack of cards. Here, said she, is your card. The drowned Phoenician sailor. <laughs> Those are pearls that were his eyes. And here is Eliot stealing a bit of Shakespeare again and coming back in with the iambic pentameter. I recently had the dubious pleasure of having my brain scanned. 
in an MRI scan as I recited sections of the waste end. It was an experiment for uh, London University. They were trying to find out what happens actors' brains when they're acting. <laughs> I was so thrilled that there was a brain there at all that I, <laughs> that I came out elated. Um, they showed me my brain on the MRI scan on the computer, and it could have been any old brain, you know, it could have been a sheep's brain, until finally, as they began to slice, I could see my absolutely inimitable nose, and I realized that the brain behind was mine. But they found, when I did the following lines, that not only did the language section of the brain show movement, but also the architectural section. I used a little bit which went, my nerves are bad tonight. It's a woman getting ready to go out to dinner. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak! What are you thinking of? What? Thinking what? I never know what you are thinking. Think. Anyway, they found that there was an architectural area of my brain that was used now, I know that when I'm thinking of those lines, I think of a dressing table because he's already described the dressing table. And I base it loosely on my mother's dressing table at home. I can see those perfumes unguent um, and unstoppered. But also, the other part of the brain they discovered was in action when I was speaking, was arm movements. So you find that it is not the language as anything that is carrying just meaning my nerves are bad tonight, yes, bad. Stay with me, speak to me, why do you never speak? Is just words. It is not the word that carries the meaning. It's something to do with the excitability of the brain that allows the word to exist in context. In my case, the context of a dressing table. But also that the person speaking the word may be in a state of movement even though I myself, in my MRI scan, am entirely tucked up and still. So I was using a series of people speaking. It's a bit like The Simpsons, you know, it's a cartoon of people. Because Elliot only knows them the same way as I do. So when you get as far as people in the pub, you hear, when Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, I didn't mince my words, I said to myself, hurry up please, it's time. Now Albert's coming back. You make yourself a bit smart. You want to know what you've done with that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. He did, I was there. You have him all out, Lil, and get a nice set, he said. I swear I can't bear to look at you. And no more can't I, I said. And think of poor Albert. He's been in the army four years. He wants a good time. And if you don't give them, others will, I said. Oh, is there, she said. Well, something of that, I said. Then I'll know who to thank, she said, and give me a straight look. Now, he doesn't know those people any more than I do, <laughs> but he obviously sat in a pub and just caught them. So the audience is reaching to make a picture all the time, and the surprise the actor gives them is to be true to the dexterity of the poet's writing. The performer inhabits it so they can. One might say that Eliot has invented his own language. He's made us see, by excellent editing, tiny vignettes of the world, Flavus the Phoenician, a fortnight dead, forgot the cry of gulls and the deep sea. It's a ragbag of quotations, but he reminds us that we are always ourselves in quotation. When he quotes Antony and Cleopatra, the chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble. He uses the full weight of Shakespeare's Elizabethan excellence, but infecting it with the cynicism of the 20th century. That is why he is great. Seconds later, Eliot writes this couple, imperfect in their marriage, getting ready. The wife couldn't be more unlike Cleopatra, saying, my nerves are bad tonight, yes, bad. 
we discovered that all ages before our own are more innocent than our own. Eliot does not expand the language the way Shakespeare did. What he does is to sail the disappointed century on top of Shakespeare's golden barge. Shakespeare is full of irony, but it's underpinned by celebration. Eliot replies to Shakespeare and offers us the opportunity to take fragments of the old world rather than swallow it whole, a fragmented poet in a fragmented time. I feel, 80 years later, that Eliot's despair is itself innocent compared to our own. There are, of course, those theatre practitioners who are not trying to play into the diachronic line of Shakespeare's language and are now using the tools of film and invention instead. Robert Lepage, for example, is not using the language base that has marked Western society. He's making a theatre that reflects the multinationalism and its attendant fragmentation by mixing languages, by daring to make language unimportant sometimes. The great thing about the theatre is the instantaneous recognition of the human experience as you see it. And Lepage makes you see it because of massively alienating circumstances. So in the seven streams of the River Ota, there's a dinner party with a Japanese geisha on one hand and an American businessman on the other. One cannot identify with the characters, but their exchange or lack of connection with each other forces one into recognising one's own isolation. There has to be an extreme for essence to be revealed. So even in Chekhov, while the situation is often entirely banal, the director and the performers have to reveal something astonishing about the human condition to make it worthwhile. Nothing is new. The novelty is in our perception. If Greek tragic plays can be rediscovered for a new generation, they are as valid as the work of a young writer who is naming the sufferings of now. Each age flounders, and writers capture the chaos in a net. Beckett gave us silence and the drama of failure with the compassionate exhortation, fail again, fail better. American film gave us image and scale. Stockhausen gave us a new musical scale. The inarticulate century is responded to by these methods. Fragmentary text is what has dominated contemporary writing. The space between meanings has become the meaning. Pinter is so connected to Beckett, who's connected to Joyce, who's connected to the 19th century. Every generation must question the discoveries of the previous one. Knowledge is fluid, but every generation must also replace the system that makes sense of all we have learned, and that is so valuable, with a way of experiencing it. In Ireland, we are post-post-colonial. The theatre is on the brink of new discovery. Psychotherapy, video, technology, non-theatre spaces, non-texts, interaction, extremity, discomfort for the audience, deconstruction are all the tools that the young theatre maker or young performer are much more fluent with than someone from my generation where form and matter or language were still paramount. Now we make what to our grandparents would look like quantum leaps in terms of visual reference. I think our job is not to forget what is already there to know. We live in a time when many feel the need to forget. America is the continent of forgetfulness, which allowed a warm wind of passivity to replace downtrodden populations. We may have been tempted ourselves in our recent wealth to go that way. As Gore Vidal says, the problem with the pursuit of happiness is not the happiness, but the pursuit. 
Our generation in Europe has been particularly ungrateful to the generation that went before. Hope was murdered in the middle of the last century, and we are still blinking in the sunlight. What can we hope for? In Ireland, it's a country still full of new ambition, and we can hope to match our Celtic imaginations to the skills and rhythm of a language honed in Renaissance England without any fear that it might bite us now. We could marry the two traditions and create an explosive synthesis, the physicality of a language that had its roots in the unconscious of Europe and our own inimitable, remarkable, Celtic, ancient, free imaginations. We can do this in many ways, but for me, the prospect of a drama school in Dublin or in anywhere in Ireland that would breed a new generation of actors who learn these skills freely is devoutly to be wished. To expand our repertory so that we don't just claim the canon in our own context, but develop versions of classical plays that themselves resonate in the wide world. We can hope to do this in a recession as well as any other time, because the nightingale sings louder when there is more resistance. Those men reeling from financial ruin in the art gallery may finally understand that in the imagination there is no crash, only the boom of infinite creativity. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fiona Shaw, for that thought-provoking lecture that brought together the elephant and the nightingale, <coughs> the English speaking in the key of G major, while the Irish spoke in a minor key, rhythm as a key to the subconscious, and John Donne as a punk rocker. <laughs> I'd like to open the discussion up to the floor now, so if you have a question or would like to make a comment, perhaps you could raise your hand. Hi, I'm uh, Karen Quigley. I'm from King's College London. Um, Thank you very much for the talk. I, I love that you were talking about the enduring nature of language in theatre, but then you were mentioning Robert Lepage and the idea that sometimes language is unimportant. And I think, firstly, it's very generous coming from, from my experience of your work, someone who's quite language-based, often in a lot of ways. And I know that language is very important, presumably, in this struggle to forge a continuation of drama training in this country, for example. But can, can you think maybe of other times when language becomes unimportant, either in, in the theatre, in your own work, maybe? I mean, language often is only the tool to get you to the place where the thing takes off. As I said, that I think Beckett takes off in silence. There's a wonderful bit in um, Footfalls when uh, the character called Amy, or May, which is so good you don't know who she is, says, a little later, when she was quite forgotten, she began to... A little later, when as though she had never been, it never been, began to. And you know, you panic, you think, began to what? Began to what? <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's the writing going on in the brain of the listener going, for goodness sake, get on with it. I can't bear sitting here in the silence. And, and that's all part, that discomfort is part of this, the discomfort that you're experiencing. Um, but Brian Friel once said to me that in Dancing at Lunasa, the great moment was the explosion of music, when finally, he said, the play was freed from language. So, you know, these things, uh, uh, one would never want to become possessive of language for language's sake. In fact, 
The point I think I'm trying to make is that rather than verbiage, we should look at what language is. It's not really the verbiage and it's not the political ramifications of the language we inherit. It's what we do with it now. It's this plastic ability to be able to carry not just meaning, as I say, in, in the line, but the muscularity of language, the texture of language, not the kind of 19th century beauty of language, which is just as nauseating as, as anything else. And people like Lepage, of course, are taking human experience and and... Um, and, and also taking somehow the language you hear in the street and making it poetical. I remember one night I overheard a couple having a fight in the street and um, this girl was going, Jack, <laughs> unlock the bike, Jack. And you could hear him going, unlock the bike, Jack. Unlock the bike, Jack. I thought this is a kind of poem called Unlock the Bike, Jack. And <laughs> I knew what it meant. She meant, let me go free, Jack. And it was interesting. I couldn't hear his side of it at all. Clearly, he had the key to the bike, and she wasn't going anywhere um, in any sense. And, you know, it's often, that could happen to any of us. You, you, you hear something with a very basic insistence, and you start hearing, there is a poetry in argument. Often, we're poetic when we fight each other, because you suddenly concentrate the language. People become incredibly clear. You know, if you don't close the garage door, I'll never speak to you again. Um, you, you get to a point where you are clear and heightened. And really, all art is, is a sort of, you know, somebody called it the objectification of feeling. But actually, it's just the harnessing of feeling. And often, luckily, not all your feelings, other people's feelings too. So you don't have to have them because somebody had them on the stage. And I think... Um, this new style of international theatre allows, is a big challenge to us here. It stops us thinking that if we make a joke that we laugh at in our island, that somehow the world is resolved by that joke. It isn't. Jokes can be just as insular as non-jokes can be wayward. But Robert Depage doesn't try and make any national joke about being Canadian. He just says, this is what I've noticed. Have you ever been at an airport where? And you'll suddenly have a scene of people at, air, at an airport doing very ordinary things. But because it has the focus of the theatre, you begin to identify with just people, not necessarily Irish people or Canadians, as I say. And they have very odd jokes. So. <laughs> Eugene Downs. Thanks, Sean. Eugene Downs, Culture Ireland. Uh, Fiona, I'd like to ask you about the music of language and, and music itself in theatre, because... I'm thinking recently I've, I've seen you sing on stage in Mother Courage, Thank you. Um, perform in Purcell's Didon Aeneas in Paris, though not sing, uh, and then also direct Riders to the Sea, the Vaughan Williams opera, um, and then of those great moments in theatre and, and, and theatrical language that you've talked about tonight, uh, in Greek theatre, the singing of the choral lyrics, in Shakespeare, the songs... I suppose, in, again, the Celtic Revival, the way Yeats used songs in his, in his own plays. Do you find that the, the form itself is changing, or as you work in, in music in the theatre, uh, or do you find you're drawn more towards the, the fusing of those forms and not just the music of the language itself? Uh, um, well, I think really what you get with people like Beckett is you begin to understand that with each generation, um, rhythm wears itself out very quickly. 
So, you know, when you hear those great recordings of Yeats going, that is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees. Uh, in fact, he thought he was doing the right thing by doing that. He didn't speak like that in real life. Uh, he just thought that that was really a hip thing to do. Well, most people wouldn't be able to hear that now because we've got so used to a jagged, um, a jagged way of speaking, uh, partially because of the speed. Funny enough, people speak in their iambic pentameter more often in the country than they do in the city. In the city, they don't make such like sounds. I had a wonderful teacher when I was at RADA called um, Mrs. Percy, and Mrs. Percy used to have a dog and a wig and we always hoped that one day she'd get them mixed up and that the, <laughs> the dog would be on her head anyway. But she used to say, people who like each other make like sounds. People who don't like each other make unlike sounds. And I think that's true. People say, oh, that's a lovely dress. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely. Where'd you get it? I've got Marks and Spencer's friend. And they're actually singing to each other. And people who don't like each other, you know, say, that's a nice dress. Buzz off. Um, you, you'll hear that there's a rhythmical affront normally between people who don't like each other. But um, I, I, I have just been lucky enough to, um, to be participating in some operas. I think that's actually largely to do with the fact that I think the theatre itself sometimes has a bigger scope in the opera than it has had in the theatre. So it's great fun to experience those huge landscapes, um, both musically and also, I have to say, budgetarily in terms of uh, set design. So you can suddenly create enormous worlds in the opera that you're not always allowed to do in the theatre. Victor Feldman. I do a bit of acting, Fiona, myself, and I'm English, so I tend to speak of this G major you just spoke about, and I'm delighted that you did say that, because I have an eternal problem with younger actors, and maybe you could answer me on this. I feel like I'm Galileo trying to prove that the world is round to them. They just don't listen to me, and it seems as if they're talking in this uh, more legato way of talking, these young Irish actors, well, I'm more into this what you say, G major, iambic, pentameter. And half the time, I feel like when I'm listening to them, I'm only kidding them that I can hear them. But really, I need to know their lines really well because I can't understand half of what they're saying. I feel that we speak, as you seem to be implying there, in a constructed way, you know, which a lot of foreign students have told me is a very easy to understand. And they've told me to find the Irish difficult to understand. I don't want to go on. But it is something, a beef to me, because they look at me, other actors, like as if I'm meant to be deaf or something. You know? So thank you very much, Fiona. You might apply something on that for me, please. Thank you. Well, I will respond. I, I, I'm absolutely not keen on the Irish in any way changing their minor key. That's exactly what we've got, mm -hmm. and it's much softer and gentler than the English D major. So I think my hope would be that we would find a way of speaking uh, this strange iambic pentameter, which we already share with the English, English writer, the great English writer, and that we would find a way of minting it newly for ourselves without aping anything to do with the other country that produced it. I mean, probably, anyway, Shakespeare's English sounded much more like our English when it was written than it sounds like modern English now. But I, I'm, I'm excited that once you know the rules of Shakespeare, it can be implied, applied to any young student actor. And I think without the rules, even uh, young actors who are learning the Irish canon or practicing on Irish plays are not really sure what they're standing on. They're standing on the pylons of this Elizabethan writing, and I don't think they know that. And I, I'm just encouraging them to excavate and get in underneath the pylon so that they can then do what they like with it when they get to the top. But 
being clear would certainly be one of the main things they should try and be. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Victor. Hello, Fiona. My name is Orla, Orla Scan, and um, I've enjoyed your performances over the years so much, and you've brought so much joy to my life, so thank you very much. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, in Medea, um, uh, the violence was relayed through language rather than being experienced on the stage, and I was wondering what sort of impact that has on the actor to actually relay such t- terrible scenes, you know, through their, through their, through their emotions. Uh, well... You know, the truth is a lie, Picasso said. <laughs> um, I, I, my memory of Medea is that just before I killed the children, we used to do finger painting sessions in the wings. But that's, that would be to destroy your, your, your magic moment. Um, we are offering you an illusion of murder, obviously. The children and I got on very well. And um, that is the joy of theatre, that you're making an illusion in order to provoke a truth, I suppose. Uh, but we are not really experiencing it at that moment. Now, having said that, of course, in the rehearsal room, you are trying to get to a point where you can experience imaginatively uh, that sort of violence. In that way, I think the theatre is a very, very healthy place for any civilization. I think it's a fantastic place for people to work out their angers, their questions, um, the, 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 the spectrum of human behaviour that's much wider than the average uh, behavioural pattern of people having the odd row, going shopping, eating in a restaurant, going home. You do need a place where we can all look at each other and say, what happens if somebody is a bit worse behaved? What happens if they're really worse behaved? What are the moral consequences of that behaviour? So um, I think you know Greek tragedy functioned very much at the time uh, in Athens and you know and Epidavros, where I've been lucky enough to play as a place where the whole community comes to watch somebody behaving absolutely outrageously, whether it's Oedipus daring to kill his father and marry his mother, or Medea daring to kill her children. And these are really, you know, they're quasi-religious phenomenal experiences. And they've been, of course, thinned out since then. But actually, as we um, head into a period when so much can be manipulated now by video by computers, by computer imaging, I think there's going to be an enormous revival in the theatre in Europe and in Ireland as well because we are now desperate to watch the thing happen before our very eyes so that we can make a proper judgment of what we're looking at, not some manipulated judgment by whoever's editing the, the event. There is no editor if you and the actor are in the same space. And that remains, I think, the great, great power of the theatre. Anybody else? My name is Carmel McRae, and I was just, as you mentioned, the rehearsal process and the truth and the uh, disturbance that you find within that. As an actor, where do you find that your moment comes? Is it, can you continually repeat that moment every night, or is it difficult to plug in to what you've had in the rehearsal room? Um, There's always a terrible moment when you leave the rehearsal room and go to the stage, and it suddenly seems like quite a different place. I mean, you're doing it in a group, of course, as a communal kind of energy. Um, It takes a lot of concentration. But I would say, fundamentally, theatre acting is fundamentally different to film acting, precisely because you do have to do that moment every night. And I suppose if there's any discipline, it is in making yourself want to do it every night. You cannot half do it. You have to do it. It does take a lot out of people's lives in that I find that the 
concentration, and by that I don't mean sitting, you know, looking like sort of Atlas with my head in my hands, but just the, the fact that you're going to do that in the evening sort of dominates a lot of the second half of the day. After lunch, you sort of vaguely move towards it, like, it, like, like when you're making a, a journey and go towards an airport. You know, it takes a lot longer to get to the airport than you, you wish it would because you've got to think about it and pack and forget your keys and remember them. Um, so there's a, a bit of that sort of thing. But there, the moment that you find it is a moment when the group in the group realise that something has been hit and makes sense. And I was talking to Sean earlier about this, that... It seems to me what's being communicated when somebody is acting or speaking passionately is not the information that lies in the sentence they're saying, but in the rate of their heartbeat at that moment. What really happens in a theatre when something gets very exciting, as opposed to a boring play, which I'm sure we've all attended, is that your heartbeat remains the same at a boring play. At a good play, your heartbeat is the thing that begins to excite you. And that is excited by the energy of the performer making your heart beat, possibly by his or her own heart beating faster. And that's a sort of trick of the imagination. But the great thing about the imagination is you can play that trick on yourself again and again and again. Um, I find the harder the play, the more likely the trick is to come off each time because you all have to work very hard to make it happen. I presume, Fiona, that your heart must have beaten faster a few times during the lecture because certainly you communicated <laughs> it to the audience in some shape or form. Well, it's exciting when you're playing other people, of course. <laughs> so reading your own isn't the same. <laughs> Another lady here. Uh, my name's Katie Hayes. Um, I was very interested in what you said about periods um, of uh, dynamism in language manifesting as dynamism in theatre. Obviously, the Greek period and the Elizabethan period and our own uh, early 20th century here. Um, and I'm curious uh, as to what you think of our, our current period in terms of the development of language um, at the moment, especially in terms of how it in interacts with technology, because it seems to me that we're in a, a tremendous state of flux at the moment. So I'm interested in what you'd say about that. So to wither the future is the question, isn't it? Wither the future. Um, I, I don't know where... I mean, we are definitely in the middle of a technological... Um, explosion and I think maybe we should all just fasten our safety belts and just let it go by I I don't think it'll we'll go backwards from it uh, it is a fantastic tool I have to say it's um I've just been performing uh, mother courage and uh, you know this very hard thing to tell the story of the 30 years war and I never see it but at the back of the auditorium there is a map of Europe drawn with little with a little cart traveling through all bits of Europe whilst the play is going on so they are you know they're magical and childlike some of these tools but they don't half uh, put people back in touch with things that otherwise would be impossible to communicate so I'm all for technology I also think our aesthetic sense of beauty and what we're looking at on the stage has gone up and up and up. So maybe we've lost the kind of fireside storytelling element of the theatre and we're replacing it or we're matching it with a kind of huge aesthetic energy. Um, but I don't think in essence the communication, as I've said, between the, the performer and the listener will change. And in Ireland, it seems to me that there's a big, there's a big kind of surge. Marina Carr's writing is incredibly poetical. Um, there's a big surge for sort of surrealism and a, and a sort of um, magic realism that is sort of allied. It's not quite the same thing, I think, as, as the um, Renaissance language was trying to do. It's not necessarily trying to excavate a truth, but it says that extremes of language 
carry meaning. Maybe not the meaning you're trying to, that's carried in the sentence, but a sort of colour, a sort of... Um, a sort of landscape of possibility that is wider than ordinary speech. And I'm very glad that we're past realism. Realism was getting us nowhere. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Fiona Shaw. You've been listening to the 2009 Michael Littleton Memorial Lecture, The Elephant and the Nightingale, The Enduring Nature of Language in Theatre, which was delivered by Fiona Shaw. Sound supervision was by Mark McGrath and Kira Murphy. The programme was produced by Kevin Rennes. rta.ie forward slash drama on one.